Welcome to Music Crush, a new music podcast hosted by the Flute New Music Consortium. I'm Nicole Reiner. And I'm Elizabeth Robinson. And announcing FNMC Presents, an album of previous commissions and competition winners performed by members of the Flute New Music Consortium. Repertoire includes works by Sean O'Pebolo, Joseph Hallman, Becca Sims, Cherie Slider, and others. Purchase a copy today. All proceeds go directly to FNMC. Flute New Music Consortium, Inc. is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Your contributions are tax deductible to the extent allowed by the law. Visit www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com for details. Praised for singing with passion and emotional depth by the Richmond Times-Dispatch, soprano Jennifer Piazzapik has performed with the National Theater Mannheim, Germany, as well as with U.S. military bands in Belarus, Latvia, and Lithuania. In the U.S., she has performed with Opera Piccoloa of San Antonio, the Princeton Festival, Ithaca Opera, Long Beach Opera, Cincinnati Opera, the Princeton Opera Festival, the Charlottesville Symphony, and at Carnegie Hall. She has also given the premieres of numerous contemporary works by such composers as Eric Whitaker, Jennifer Stevenson, and a friend of this podcast, Cherise Leiter. She regularly performs vocal chamber music and co-founded the chamber ensemble Whistling Hens, a soprano clarinet duo which champions music by women composers. Their first album, Reacting to the Landscape, was released in October 2022. It features the works of seven living American women composers. Jennifer is currently Assistant Professor of Music and Voice at Queen's University of Charlotte, and we met her at the 2023 Music by Women Festival, where she performed Juliana Hall's Sentiment and gave a workshop entitled Repertoire by Women Composers for Early and Intermediate Stage Singers with her colleague, Dr. Terry Bickham of UNC Greensboro. Jennifer, welcome to Music Crush. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm always curious about people's origin stories um, because it, even today, you know, even I think even college students today may or may not have a mentor that leads them to new music. But I think certainly in in the case of of our generation, many of us didn't have the chance to study new music seriously as college students. Have you always been interested in contemporary art music? Did you have a mentor as a student or did you come come to it in some other way? I had absolutely no interest in contemporary music at all. Mm. Um, my, I didn't take voice lessons in high school. I was a flute player. Oh, you were? <laughs> oh my God. We didn't know that. You're ready for a quiz. No. I took private <laughs> flute lessons actually. And I was in all state band and marching band, but I was also in choir and all state choirs and those things. And I ended up getting a really big scholarship um, to be a singer. And so um, one of the, in fact, the very first faculty recital I went to from our voice faculty at my undergraduate, which is Ithaca College, um, was the woman who specialized in like contemporary atonal music. Hmm. And so that was the first thing I heard. And all I knew was musical theater and choral pieces in the singing world. And I was like, what is this? I hate this. this isn't music. I'm never doing this. Um, so for a long time, I just thought, oh, this is just the weird atonal stuff. Um, and after a little bit, I actually realized that I could sing some of that weird atonal stuff. And I really loved the challenge of it, mm. but not always the music. Um, 
And then in 2011, um, when my husband and I moved to San Antonio after living several years abroad, um, I met Ruth Friedberg and she was one of the two authors of American Art Song and American Poetry. And she really got me into American song. And it was because of her and um, this influence of American song that sort of connected me to some of the local composers. And they started, they had a, a spring concert every year and I sang some of their music and I was like, oh, this is really fun. And it's not always atonal, but when it is, it can be pretty cool. And, and I was like, huh, I like premiering new works. This is very fun. And then I started to, you know, look at my ideas, my formative ideas on contemporary music and thought, oh, <laughs> I have a lot of misconceptions. <laughs> so oh, that's amazing. So what uh, what do you particularly like about about giving premieres? I think it's exhilarating to perform something for an audience for the first time. I love to find out the reactions. Mm. Um, you know, and I love I love learning something where there's no recording, there's nothing. I just have to create I have to listen to it and learn it myself and I have to create the character myself and there's nobody else telling me who this character is or what the interpretation traditionally is. It's just my creative juice flowing through that character and and I love the musical challenge of learning something that nobody else has learned yet. I am really interested in your organization, The Whistling Hens. Um, and for any of our listeners who maybe haven't already spent a ridiculous amount of time on the Whistling Hens website, there's a really great origin story about the name that I would love for you to tell us. But after you do that, could you tell us a little bit about how the organization came to be? So Whistling Hens um, is a soprano clarinet duo currently that performs only music by women composers. Uh, actually, I'll get to the name in my origin story here, because Ooh. I think it follows in. Um, so Natalie Groom is the clarinetist, and we were both doing our doctorates at the University of Maryland. And like the first class you have to take, you know, is the bibliography class. And uh, my master's degree was well before my doctorate. I finished my master's degree. I lived in Germany and sang there and went, you know, all these other places had been teaching and singing for many years, went back for my doctorate. And Natalie has done her music degrees and had also done a, an MBA and that was coming back to school to do her doctorate in clarinet. And so we're taking this bibliography class and we really very quickly realized, oh, we have a lot in common. And one of those was a budding interest in women composers. Mm -hmm. um, but as a soprano clarinet duo, you know, all we knew was Schubert Shepherd on the rock. So we're like, well, we might do this thing one day. We'll see. And so first we just sort of started out with soprano clarinet and piano mm -hmm. um, with women composers. So we found Margaret Garwood's Six Japanese Songs and Barbara Harbach's Pioneer Women from Skagway to White Mountain. And after that, we, I mean, we loved our pianist. We loved working together, but we really wanted something with some duo rep, but we weren't sure if it was going to be possible. And I happened to be reading a biography of Nadia Boulanger. And I found this quote by a music critic of her sister, Lily. Um, it was in the New York Times in 1918. And the male music critic said, 
women composers are at best whistling hens. Ugh. Exactly. <laughs> and so I put the book down immediately and like called Natalie, not even text, but old school call. Cause I had to hear her voice when I told her this. <laughs> It was just like, I found our name. We're going to be whistling hens. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, we were like, okay, I guess we're really doing this now because we have a name. But, you know, finding duo rep was really tricky for just soprano and clarinet. And then let's narrow it down to only women composers. Mm-hmm. So we actually started out with several transcriptions of works. And then we branched our way into commissioning. That's awesome. You said currently a duo does that imply that there are expansions on the horizon and if so are you able to talk about that if not I can well you know it's never it's been something we've always floated um that Mm -hmm. this was not something that we just wanted to keep to ourselves um but then the pandemic happened oh sure and you know we've we both are in different places at the moment and uh we were just like okay maybe right now this isn't something we can expand. We'll just, you know, keep working with ourselves, but it has been something that we've always thought that, Hey, you know, this would be a great thing to bring in other performers, not just the two of us. That's awesome. So you kind of set me up for our next question, but I, I had to ask the expansion question first. Um, do you guys have a system for identifying the composers that the whistling hens want to work with? Um, how do you find the right collaborators for your organization? <laughs> There's not really a system. Um, (laughs) It's more like researching, Mm. listening to a lot of different composers and searching for repertoire that we like and not limiting ourselves to looking for repertoire for just soprano and clarinet, but just listening to repertoire in general by different composers. And then attending, you know, music conferences, especially women in music conferences like Music by Women, where Mm. we met. That's extremely helpful. Um, Conferences like that, let you hear the music, but often the composer herself is there. Oh, yeah. So then you can chit chat with them and see like, hey, how how do we get along? How does this work? Um, and actually, Music by Women is where we met our first two commissions, Ashy Day and your podcast friend, Sharice Leiter. Oh, yeah. Yay. We met them both the very first time we went to Music by <laughs> Women um, together. And being able to chat with the composer really starts giving you a sense of the person and their values. And we, you know, we do a lot of listening and then we also love a good Zoom happy hour to chit chat. (laughs) And not every composer have we been able to get to know very well, but somehow things seem to work. I, I feel like when you maybe have similar musical interests, sometimes that also helps. Sure. When, you know, the composer writes in a way that speaks to us as performers somehow personalities work really well that way too. We met backstage at the Music by Women conference because Nicole and I were about to go on stage to play a piece by Kimberly Osberg and you like ran back and said I can't stay because I think you were about to go sing like within I was singing yeah right after But you sort of cruised by and were like, we also have a piece coming by Kim Osberg and we found it because of you. Tell, tell us about that piece because we're, well, we're big fans of Kim Osberg on this podcast. Part of that was Natalie because she uh, she saw the chicken song and, you know, we're whistling hens. So sure. any songs about chickens were like, woo, what's this? <laughs> 
So we, uh, and yeah, we we had commissioned Kim and we premiered the piece she wrote for us three weeks after I met you all at Music by Women. Wow. That is super cool. Tell us a little bit about the piece. I'm on the yeah. website reading about it, but I would love for you to tell our listeners too. Hombres Necios uh, is a poem by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. She was a 16th century nun, but also theologian and feminist and got into quite a bit of trouble. But Hombres Necios is a really long Spanish poem, basically discussing the double standards of being a woman. Mm. That if you don't want to give yourself to a man, you will probably be called a prude. But if you do, you're probably going to be called loose. And blaming men for that, you know, you foolish men, you're the you're the ones who say this about us. <laughs> this is not, why, why is it one or the other and they're both bad? So it's interesting that that poem also is a 16th century mm. poem. I find that very cool. I guess some problems are timeless. Sadly. <laughs> Did you bring the text to Kim? Did you bring the subject matter to Kim? Or did she provide that to you out of her own wacky and creative mind? She she had provided a few ideas. Okay. Um, okay. That's what we, we really sort of gravitated. There were a couple of things, actually, we really gravitated toward. But I felt like we felt like that was probably the right thing. I, I really love that subject matter. And I, I love that the three of you brought that into existence. It's really fun. From a performance perspective, as you've, as you've already mentioned, you have a, a very, you know, sturdy, classic repertoire background as well. Um, do you have different approaches for prepping contemporary music versus the, the old timey stuff, so to speak, or, or different approaches on stage with those kinds of prep? There are so many factors that go into the way one prepares music right? And time period is one of them. And language, of course, for me is another, right? What, uh, what language am I singing in? So if it's a language I'm not fluent in or not completely comfortable in singing in, then that takes me a little more time. And I like to start, but I always start with language, no matter what, translating what I don't know, all of those things. But I think that's pretty typical of any singer. Um, if I'm working on an operatic role or a really long work, I often start learning the piece from the end and work backward. Mm. Uh, and I love doing this because for two reasons. One, I find it immensely satisfying to be able to sing to the end. I just do. <laughs> You're always like, look, I can get to the double bar. It's, I'm so good. So I love, <laughs> if it's long, I love to start at the end because I also find that, you know, you know the beginning pretty well because once you start learning a piece, you start from the beginning. You may or may not be as engaged by the time you get to the end. So with something longer, I like to start at the end and then I've really already spent the time there. Um, and the other thing that I like about that for a longer piece is that as a soprano, I often have to sing things from memory. Mm -hmm. Right. So the end is memorized <laughs> and that's mm -hmm. a real comfort. Um, that the end is memorized. Um, another factor I think that's really important for me because I can't, I don't have perfect pitch and I don't have an instrument where I can press the button and get the right note. So tonality or lack thereof is something really uh, a major factor in how I approach something. Um, I know if something is not tonal, I'm going to need more time. Mm -hmm. And if I'm performing something with less tonality and 
I'm not working with a harmonic instrument, then I'm also going to need more time. Right. Um, because a harmonic instrument will provide me with a lot of support, right? Whereas when I do a lot of things with Natalie or with flute players or violinists or oboists, it's a duet. So yeah, I don't have any, I don't have a lot of ways to ground my sense of the key. Um, so when it's not tonal, I mean, I got to just drill those pitches and then I often will need to go to the piano and I play the other part while I sing mine, which is also quite tricky. In a lot of contemporary repertoire too, sometimes you see some really large jumps, right? Sevenths or larger octave in a second, octave in a third. Persichetti's harmonium comes to my mind actually, as I'm saying that, which is really funny where there's just, he has a lot of seventh leaps or octave in a second leaps in both directions. Mm -hmm. So something I often do is I will just move all the pitches into the same octave mm. and learn everything in one octave. And then once I'm really comfortable, I just displace the octave and put it back where it belongs. So that's, that's a really helpful thing for my, my oral skills. When I learned how to, that I could do that, I was like, Oh yeah. Hey, if I just sing it in this same octave, I can find all the notes. How about that? Um, and then another consideration that I have as a singer, and I'm sure you also as flute players is the use of vibrato, mm. right? Time period really matters there. I certainly do not want to sing Puccini without vibrato, but I might want to add some in take some away in handle. I might want to take some away in something that's not tonal or something that has a lot of clashing with my collaborator. Um, and with modern composers, you just don't know. They may want a full operatic sound. They may want a musical theater sound. They may want a jazzy sound. It just, it really depends on the rep and the composer. So in that case, then thinking about the sound that I make, I find that I've got a really talk to a composer sometimes, you know, if I'm not a hundred percent sure, and I'm always ready to, you know, make some recordings of myself as I learn something new and send it to a composer to ask for feedback. Is this what you're looking for? Approaching characters. I don't know. It doesn't matter what time period for me. I, I approach the character as who they are as a human being. I think that's the, the most fun thing is who is this person that's speaking this text and why are they saying it and you know art song is always more difficult can often be excuse me more difficult than opera because in an opera or in a musical you know the characters develop they change you get a lot of background about them there's other people and you learn about their relationships with them whereas in art song or chamber music you probably have a poem and you have to interpret hey. the poem and who's the character in the poem and what are they saying and why mm -hmm. so you have to provide those cues for yourself, which I find personally quite fun. As you were talking, you mentioned singing along with sing or singing in partnership with single line instruments. And you said something about drilling pitches. One of the trends I've noticed in a lot of new music for flute lately is music for singing flutist in which you are producing a pitch on the instrument but also there's a pitch coming from your voice sometimes in alternation and sometimes at the same time and while I'm sure what I'm dealing with is is nowhere near as atonal as some of the repertoire that you've tackled you mentioned drilling pitches and the performer in me was like oh, 
we need to talk. Um, are you talking about drilling a sense of relative pitch, like just finding, pulling a pitch out of the sky? Or are you talking about relational, relationally or whatever that word is between yeah. you and whatever instrument is happening? Re relationally, um, I have actually quite, I have very good relative pitch. Once I'm singing something for a little bit, I can probably start singing it in the correct key without you giving me that pitch. But that being say, said, I will never do that on stage because oh, sure. that would be the time I would get it wrong. Um, but um, what I, I mean in relation to each other, right? So here's my starting pitch and now I'm singing F, D flat, G, B flat, A, down to low C, jump up to you know, C4, then up to D5. And okay, what are all their relationships, right? So literally just singing those on a vowel or on a hum with no rhythm, mm -hmm. just so I know what those pitches are and I can sing them without thinking. Um, no rhythm, no time, just thinking through the pitches. And I like I guess what I mean by drilling is that then I can sing them correctly without thinking about their intervallic relationships. So building a, a muscle memory sort of of what those pitches feel like in your body. Like when you have to play long runs yeah, and okay. you work it up so that you don't think about your fingers anymore. Mm -hmm. You just play them. You see the notes and your fingers play them. It's the same kind of idea I find with atonal, like that I've sung the pitches so many times that I know what they are. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. I guess I'm always looking for a, a magic trick to make some of those pitch relationships a little bit more natural for someone who doesn't use her voice as a primary instrument. I don't find all of them to be quite natural in my own voice. <laughs> and so that's okay. <laughs> I have to work to make them natural and that's all right. right you sure. Know? That makes a lot of sense. Was that related to a Cherise Leiter piece of yours in your repertoire, Elizabeth? Uh, a Sharice piece among others. I, Sharice is, is the one that's on my stand currently. There, there are some pitches so. where she's, she's created some pitch relationships or some intervals between the human and the flute. And I think they're important because those intervals show up later um, sequentially and they don't always happen that way when I do them. So I'm, I'm trying to find ways to make things more accurate for poor Charisse and poor mm -hmm. Ella Fitzgerald and, and poor Hildegard of Bingen. <laughs> it's not, I mean, there are a lot of things that can be difficult and you just have to give yourself the grace. But I think it's hard when we're professionals to be like, why isn't this coming quickly? This should come faster. No, sometimes it just doesn't. <laughs> And that's all right, but we have to give ourselves the grace and the opportunity to be like, okay, these intervallic relationships are not sitting in my ear. Let me just <laughs> take some time and I'm going to take 10 minutes every day and just sit here and drill them. And I, I literally mean like I sit at the piano and I just like press the, the key, E, E. Right. <laughs> until they're right, until I have them. And I, I think the most important thing I, I can do for myself in those situations is to only give myself a small section to work on at a time. Sure. If I look at the whole piece, I'm going to freak out. And this goes back to the like, okay, should I start at the end or should I start at the beginning? It just depends on how it's set up and how much atonality or difficulty I'm having with pitches. 
or where the, the hardest section is or ever that is. I hate forcing myself to go there first, but future me will like me much better if I go there first. Sure, sure. <laughs> I guess it probably helps to have a system in place that you know, it's something that you do regularly as part of your music making. Well, you know, I think also though, don't we all as musicians develop what that system that works for us personally, we develop it over time. Yes. And as we change and our skills change, the way we approach music changes each time. And I think that's what's really fun about being a musician. It's it's fun, I think, further along in the process. I, I hear myself in the <laughs> practice room. I teach uh, oral skills sometimes when I'm, I'm not being a flutist. And there's always that student who's like, why do I have to sing this? So I could play it on my instrument and it'd be just fine. And for any current students who are listening, that was not an impression of any one of you specifically. <laughs> um, but I, I, I relate to them deeply sometimes when I'm, I'm in my practice space trying to become a singing flutist. Because yeah, if I could just play those pitches in order on the flute, everything would be easy. But it's a new skill set. And so it's a stretch. You know, I have also uh, taught oral skills myself and I've heard that question many a time. Yep. I can play this on my instrument and I'm not a singer. Yes, you are correct. But <laughs> there are going to be times where you are, you are maybe an educator, you are a conductor, you are part of an ensemble, like a small ensemble, and you've got to be able to say, hey, this is sharp, or this is flat, or we're not in tune, or aren't we supposed to be in a major third together? I'm not sure we are. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to hear that. And the easiest way to teach your ears to hear it and replicate the sounds is to sing. It's to, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, as a teacher, I definitely recognize the tie in between producing the sound and being able to audiate the sound. But, but it's really frustrating as an instrumentalist, I am sure that you just like, wait, I just want to press the buttons and it'll be fine. <laughs> I love that every time both of us are talking about pressing the buttons, there are very dramatic hand and arm gestures that are happening. That's really delightful. Yeah, I'm worried about your, your hand technique, both of you, actually. You're going to get carpal tunnel doing that, but. Yeah, sorry. Oh, wait. <laughs> you've been you you two have really gone down a the the isolationist wormhole that is practice. Um <laughs> with some really great advice. But I'm interested in um the the wide variety of collaborations that you engage in as well, Jennifer. I mean, not only as a performer, but as a teacher. When we were at the Music by Women Festival with you, your I mean you you sang several times, mm -hmm. um, but you also gave a presentation with another colleague about incorporating women's music into, into teaching, you know, repertoire. So you, you obviously seem like you find collaborations with others rewarding. Do you experience any challenges in those collaborations? You mentioned that um, your clarinetist lives in a different place. Does that make things trickier? I imagine it does. Or, you know, how do you how do you overcome the challenges that you experience? I mean, there, there are lots of challenges one faces in collaboration. And the more people involved in a collaboration, the more chance for uh, challenges. And you know, especially if it's a group thing and there's not a specific person or persons in charge, mm. um, that's where it gets difficult because, you know, you've got that group project syndrome that happens. The more people <laughs> involved, the more chance it's going to land on one person, which I have learned many lessons about. Um, and of course, not every collaboration is a good fit either. But as you 
continue down your journey as a professional, I think you start learning the types of personalities you collaborate well with and the types of people you collaborate well with. And I think probably the biggest thing I've learned in collaboration is uh, trying to recognize when to keep my mouth shut. And that's really hard because I'm a soprano. Uh, I have a I have really hard time not talking, obviously. Um, but But knowing like, hey, is this something that's worth us hashing it out? Is this a really important point? Or is this a minor point that I could live with and it would be fine? And I'm okay with that. But definitely as, you know, as one ages, one starts recognizing collaborators. And yeah, Natalie and I facing the challenge of not living in the same city anymore, we started to recognize like, hey, we could probably let ourselves get together for two major, like intense rehearsal periods a year. Mm. And we just need like a day to touch up before we do this, the things. So we actually have a uh, a personal residency coming up at the end of this month. We had done Avalok Farm Music Institute a few years ago, which was an amazing mm-hmm. thing to do. If you don't know Avalok, it's uh, a great place you can apply to go for ensembles and you go for a week or two and you get a place to stay and a rehearsal space and three meals a day and you just work on your rep and whatever it is your project you're working on. Um, but we decided this year instead, since we are presenting at the National Women's Theater Festival in a couple of weeks in and that's in Raleigh to uh and two and a half hours or so from where I am in Charlotte that Natalie's going to drive down from DC we're going to meet there do the presentation and stay of course for the conference and then she's going to come to Charlotte for a week and we're just going to do a week of going through the new music going through the new commissions checking out what we want doing some new recordings of things if we just to hear how it's going so this is probably the best way for us to move forward is finding this like residency time twice a year where we can just do intense rehearsal but it it you know takes time to chit chat and collaborate and I have to say we didn't get that idea from ourselves but while we were at Avalok we met an ensemble called Lakeshore Rush oh yeah Yes. And they used to all live in Chicago, I think, but now right. all of them do. And so they had come to Avalok for this very purpose to basically prep the rep they needed for half of the year. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of were like, oh, well, let's steal that idea. It's great. You, um, many of your answers are so admirably structured and disciplined. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I would like you to be my teacher. Oh, <laughs> you know? Um, and you and you do, as you as you mentioned, you have a teaching position. You've taught for, you know, I, I imagine many, many grade levels over the years. What do you most hope to accomplish with your students? I hope that I'm helping them to become curious learners and curious human beings. I want them to be curious about not just their voices, although I, I want them to learn how to do that. And I think singing is really tricky because your voice is so wrapped up in your personal identity. So if something goes wrong, like something goes wrong when I was playing flute, like I can be like, eh, there's some, my pad is falling off or there's some water in here. I got to clean, like there's something wrong with the instrument, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if something goes wrong when I sing, it's me. Something's wrong with me, the human. And that can be intensely personal. So taking those things and, and turning it around and being curious, why did that happen? What, what? was I doing what coordinated or didn't coordinate that I wanted. 
So first of all, taking, I guess, some of that judgment out and, and replacing it with curiosity, but then being curious about all styles and genres of music, about composers of all backgrounds, about how our profession has evolved and could still evolve, right? Because I think our the old days of you have two tracks, right? I am going to get a symphony position and or be a famous opera star, or I am going to be an educator. That those days, I don't think really they exist, but it's very small portion of people making music and the way we define a successful music career has changed. So I want them to be curious about what successful a successful music career may be. And maybe it's not even in their cards. Maybe, you know, I mean, I also teach people who are taking lessons for fun because they love making music with their body. And I want them to be cur just as curious, you know? Yes, I want them to learn standard rep, but I want them to also, and I want them to sing classical because I love that myself. But I also want them to be curious about musical theater and jazz and I want them to be curious about singing pop music or country or whatever. And what sound can you make? And it's all right, you know, that you may choose to do your career in a different way. I did. My career has not had a straight trajectory in any way. And that's okay. There's room for all of us to make music. And so I hope that my students, I hope they're just curious. Have you felt a shift uh, with your students or um, in your own pedagogical philosophy in, say, the last five or 10 years? <laughs> My own pedagogical philosophy obviously has constantly changed. Mm. But I think, I think the pandemic sort of forced us to look at why do we make music, right? What are we missing without it right now? And what, what is really important in this music making maybe taking some of the onus off of, again, that straight shot path and saying, what is it that I want to say as an artist? What is it that I want to do as an artist? And look, there are so many more tools to use than we thought. There are so many more ways to connect than we thought. How can we use that? How can we, how can we make change? So what advice would you give to your younger self? Shockingly, after all the things I just said, you're going to be so surprised to hear me say, it's okay not to follow the usual path. <laughs> it's okay to notice that the world of music is ever evolving and to push some boundaries and to do things maybe that your teacher told you you should never do. Like the first time I sang an audition wearing a skirt only to my knee and not to my ankle, I was so nervous that somehow my undergraduate teacher would know I was doing it. Because the man had always said, you never wear a skirt above the ankle in auditions. You can't do that, blah, 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 blah. Well, yes, actually, you can. <laughs> now, if I'm on a really tall stage and they're down on the first row, maybe I don't want it to be above my knee. Maybe I need it to be slightly below my knee. But that's because I don't want them looking up my dress. Not because my teacher said I have to wear something to my ankle and not show my legs. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so just thinking about those things, those absolutes that we've been told, and maybe they're not absolutes. Kind of on the flip side, and you can choose to go down the, the sort of teaching and, and pedagogy route, or you can talk about more performing, or maybe they're linked in your mind. What do you think the biggest challenge you're facing in your work is right now? On the teaching side, I think... I need more training in teaching contemporary styles. Ooh. 
I've always sung them because I love pop music, always have. And I love jazz and those things. So I've always sung them like for fun. Sure. But in the past few years, I've, you know, done a lot of been doing research and some work on my own and singing contemporary styles. But I think it's time for me to get some one-on-one guidance. And I'm really fortunate in our field right now that contemporary uh, styles pedagogy is starting to really be an important thing in the vocal field. And I'm really excited about that. Mm-hmm. There's some courses you can take and, and whatnot in the summers. So I'm trying to decide what summer I'm going to use my professional development funds to let me go to one of those. And then as a singer, I think the biggest challenge I'm facing right now is redefining who I am as a, as a performer post-COVID. That's been really challenging because I've, I've stopped doing some work that I used to always do. And I've started exploring some other work that I have never done before. And I, uh, it's a real challenge, you know, to be an older seasoned performer and uh, do something new. But I guess it's pretty obvious that I like to try new things and I like the challenge. So on the flip side, what do you think are some unique skills? I don't know, three, three unique skills, something like that, that you think have, have helped you become successful. You may have noticed that I seem to be a little bit type A, which is odd for a soprano, but I am. And so I would say self-motivation is something that I'm just sort of fortunate to be blessed with most of the time in my life. And that includes practicing. I just, I've always practiced, even if there's not an audition or a gig coming, I just practice because that's what I do. So that self-motivation, I think is a really fortunate thing. Um, I'm also an army spouse, so I have moved a lot. Um, And because of that, I always haven't had a need to contact a lot of people when I move to a new city so I can get connected as soon as possible. And I know they always tell you, you know, don't cold call, don't cold email, whatever. But there was no way for me to get around that because I knew I would only be in a place for a few years. So I needed to meet people quickly. Um, And it's really, really scary to cold contact people. But I think I'm really proud of the fact that I never let that fear stop me from doing it. And lastly, a unique skill that I have is the fact that I take a lot of acting risks on stage. People always comment on how expressive I am. And uh, Natalie could tell you that she likes to go back through our video footage one frame at a time to find my hilarious expressions. <laughs> so like during the, you know, the main part of the season, when you see funny photos of us, of me in particular from a performance. Sometimes it's from somebody who took what, took it from the audience. And sometimes it's because Natalie went back through the video and took a screenshot of the frame. We've, we've talked a little bit about your collaborations already at this point in the interview. And Nicole asked this of someone, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago. It's become one of my new favorite questions to ask new friends. If you could have any collaboration with any composer or performer living just manifest itself like tomorrow you get the call hey this is blankety blank and I want to do blah 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 what do you think it would be oh gosh she's holding her face friends it's it's a real this is this would be a screenshot for your your colleague Natalie I wish you were here I know you'd screenshot this 
Um, oh gosh, you're, I mean, anybody, any thing. I've, I've been asking mostly like composer, like uh, performer, composer, commission pairs, okay. but because you, like a commission. yeah, let's, let's, let's narrow it down. So it's slightly less overwhelming and mean of me. Well, you know, uh, Natalie and I have been on and off chatting sometimes with Clarissa Saad. She's just, her music is super cool. I sang one of her song cycles uh, on my dissertation recital. And uh, she's just, her music is super cool. I love the jazz influence, of course, from her family background. So I guess right now, I mean, if I... I got to do something with Clarice I, I think I'd be pretty pumped all right it's out there it's out there in the universe now yay Jennifer our favorite closing question what are three things you're listening to right now yeah this is like so hard because I <laughs> I listen I don't do a ton of listening I'll be quite honest because when I make so much music sometimes I just need silence you know when you spend the whole day making music or listening to other people make music sometimes you go home and you just want quiet but now that the summer is sort of in full swing and I'm not making as much music I'm doing more listening first I guess I'll stop start with the classical singer Pretty Yende Um, she's a South African singer so she did just sing for the coronation Mm. of King Charles but I first heard her many years ago she sang on a Richard Tucker Gala on PBS back when I was living in Richmond. And I rewound that performance. I can't even tell you how many times I went and found it on YouTube and I just kept rewinding because she's singing, she was singing Bellini and it sounded like a f- flute, except it was a human being. Mm. It was so unbelievable. So Pretty Ende, South African singer, but you can also hear what she did at the coronation. She's wearing the most amazing yellow dress. I, oh, Dee Dee Bridgewater, jazz singer. Nice. If you don't know Dee Dee Bridgewater, your life is really sad and you need to go listen <laughs> because the scatting is like Ella Fitzgerald level scatting. It's so good. And the so many different colors and sounds in the voice, just timbres she can find. And oh, so musical. Absolutely love Dee Dee Bridgewater. And still continuing to be my favorite pop singer is pink mm-hmm. um, I just I love her like way love her when I lived in Germany my friend and neighbor uh, she and I hopped on the Straßenbahn and went to the next town over the town where my my theater was where I was singing but we lived in Heidelberg and there was this all-day music festival at the the castle in Mannheim that was free all day and it started, you know, with small acts and then built up to a really big German act and then a big major international act. So the major German act was a group called Yuli. It's July um, that she and I both liked. And then Pink was at the end of the day. Mm. And that's the first time I saw her. And then I saw her in D.C. in 2019, I think, with my brother. And uh, she's on tour again. And I love her. Free Pink. Man, I knew Germany was ahead of us in so many ways, but... <laughs> That's another level. It was amazing. The whole day was amazing. Wow. Well, these are great suggestions. I'll include them in the program notes. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you. Mm -hmm. Thank you both for this invitation. And I got to tell you, like little high school flute player me is all pumped right now because I'm like on a flute player podcast and it's so cool.
Very few people say that, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us for another episode of Music Crush. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support the podcast, read show notes, and learn more about FNMC by visiting www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com. Music Crush.